Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 257 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Vital Side, an interview with Lindsay Mitchell. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. Brain retraining is one of the many tools used by people that have successfully recovered from chronic Lyme disease. Lindsay Mitchell has become an expert in brain retraining and has used it in her own healing journey. She's developed her company Vital Side and is now helping many people in the community regain health and get their lives back. Without further ado, Lindsay Mitchell in Vital Side. Hey, Lindsay Mitchell from Vital Side, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you very much for having me here today. Well, it's been a long time coming, Lindsay. We've uh, targeted you for uh, the hot seat at Tick Bootcamp, and uh, unfortunately, because of all kinds of scheduling challenges, it's taken us until now to get get you here. But we are now really excited to have you. So. <laughs> First up, introduce your business to our community. Talk to us about Vital Side and, and what you do at Vital Side. Sure. So, yes, Vital Side is my business. It's a brain retraining community. So, I work with people who have chronic illnesses and chronic symptoms. And I teach them about the healing properties of the nervous system and how that impacts the physical body. So we go through structure techniques and protocols on how to shift and change that brain and body communication to really benefit your physical health. So how long has VitalSide been um, in business and what are the different elements of VitalSide that you offer to the community? Yeah, so this has been going on, it's about four years at this point. So I started Vital Side pretty soon after I recovered from having Lyme disease. And at this point, it has continued to kind of evolve and change. So I offer a lot of free stuff, a free community, a public cohort where you know, I offer like free videos, free advice, all of these things on the Vital Side Community Network. And then from there, you can start to do different programs. So I have this four step method where you start with first resetting your autonomic nervous system with like a seven day free trial. And then you can join the Vital Side membership, where is uh, this is where I teach a more comprehensive structured tools on how to shift out of a state of hyperinflammation, uh, hypervigilance, people who are dealing with that kind of limbic system impairment, which I know we can talk about a little bit later. And those are tools that you can use throughout the day. And then a longer tool that you can use uh, daily to kind of retrain that survival response, that sympathetic dominant fight, flight, freeze response that can be going on when you have a chronic illness like Lyme disease. And so that is in the vital side membership. Step three is elevate brain retraining. 2.0. And this is for people who have brain retrained in vital side or another program. And then we go through how to personalize your practice, make it more yours. What if I can't visualize? We go through that and elevate. And then step four is, um, let's see, what do we have? Regulate. That's okay. number four. And reset, that's regulating. Rewire, elevate, regulate, right? Yeah, that's regulate. Regulate, regulating your autonomic nervous system, which is an important part of life. So that's live sessions. We have a state changer hub in there. So there's 
Within this community, you can have like private sessions, group sessions, in addition to the virtual courses. So it's really cool the way it's structured and set up. It is all community based. So, you know, I know that's so important to y'all and it, it is such an important part of healing. And, you know, that's what we lead with. So I'm really, I'm really proud of how far it's come and, and where it is now. It sounds like you've uh, structured this around a very powerful value ladder where you have folks who can do it on their own with all the information that you're offering through the free elements of your community. They can do it together with you or some of the tools that you're offering through your four-step process. And then of course, they can have it done for them where they have this one-on-one -on -one coaching. So you have every element of, of a value ladder available to folks and you could meet them where they need to be met. Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of those people who, when I start something, I'm like, I want to do it on my own. I want to learn it first. And I want to learn all the information and I want to start doing it on my own. You know, I, I, I just, that's kind of naturally how I am. And so I go from zero to a hundred. So then I put a hundred percent effort into it, but then I may stop and say, wait, I need some support. Like I need some accountability. Like I need someone to ask questions to. So, uh, that was kind of how I decided on this current model. It hasn't always been this way, but I wanted, you know, those people who were kind of like me wanted to do it on their own. And then if they had questions, they could chat with me. And then if you kind of know you're the person that needs community, wants that accountability, just, you know, from the start, you can have that too. So you can kind of piece it together and you take what you need, which I think is a helpful approach because brainer training isn't one size fits all. Everyone is so different and so complex. So it's nice to have different options. I really like the, I like the way you've built this so that folks who need more support or folks who want shortcuts or for folks who want to find a uh, shorter path can, can use any step in the value ladder that, uh, that works for them. Uh, and it's really, I think it's powerful that you're giving folks an opportunity to validate this however they need it to be validated. So that's, uh, I, I, I can't um, tell you that I, um, that I would do it any other way or, and, and I, I do want to compliment you for the way you built this out, which is one of the things that, you know, Matt and I, um, learned when we were looking at your material. So let's talk about your background. Um, I, I understand uh, you're living in Texas, but you're really a, um, you're really a uh, California gal. So talk to us about um, where Lindsay got her start. <laughs> yes, I live in Austin, Texas now, uh, like half of the world, I think at this point. Certainly half uh, of California. <laughs> I am originally from California. I haven't actually permanently lived there since I was about 12 years old. I traveled, you know, everywhere in between as a kid. And when I got to college, graduated from college, wanted to go into medicine, ended up going to a physician assistant school um, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And from there, I just wanted to travel. I was like, I just want to go. I just want to travel. I just want to be, um, you know, on the move, on the go, practicing medicine. And so that's what I did. I traveled every six weeks for about a year and then started working as a travel physician assistant. So I worked in like really rural communities, you know, and pretty much around the U.S. I lived in Bolivia for a little while and I 
yeah, loved medicine. I still love medicine, loved to travel, but that's when everything kind of came to a head at one point when I was, you know, within that travel and I was bitten by a tick and, you know, within that year, I was like traveling so much and, I thought, you know, the symptoms I started to get, I thought it was like jet lag. I thought I was tired, you know, just kind of headachy, groggy. And, uh, you know, it turns out a couple months later, I recognized that, you know, I had Lyme disease and, you know, definitely had to hone in and, and treat that. So spent about, um, yeah, a year of my life doing that. Which is we'll very unpack- short compared to a lot of people, which is it is. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, Lindsay. So let's start to do that. So talk to us about when you first found that you had a heart for healing and what drove you to mm-hmm. uh, the medical field. Yeah. So I, you know, it's funny. I was I was born that way. <laughs> I was born, and I knew, you know, I really wanted to help people. And I know that's kind of like a general slogan that a lot of, you know, people who are in the healing space use. Well, let me challenge you there because I I don't think it's a slogan. I think it's the way God has made us. We are supposed mm. to be living a life of contribution. We're supposed to be helping other people. So I don't think you were born anyway, other than the way you described yourself. And I don't believe it was a slogan. Yeah. And I definitely agree, but I do think that people have different levels of that. I don't think everyone has the same purpose. Everyone's supposed to do something in this way. Um, and so maybe then to kind of clarify that, yeah, I kind of was born thinking like, yes, there was a hundred percent something I was going to do in the healing space. You know, I had a little, uh, blue, uh, doctor's kit as like a four-year-old and I'd carry that around with me with like the fake scissors and band-aids and stuff like that. I, it also helped that everyone, you know, my mom was a, a surgeon. A lot of my family was in the medical field. So I was surrounded by that, um, as a kid, uh, though I did have quite a bit of empathy. I've always been, you know, um, a very compassionate person. And so that, you know, caused me to make a lot of the choices that I did throughout my life. So I knew that I wanted to uh, work in the healing space. I didn't really know in what capacity, and I have a lot of different passions. I love to, to write and to read and, uh, you know, I, I liked to act as a kid. Like there was a lot of things that I just enjoyed doing. And I think, you know, having gone through my own trauma as a kid, you know, dealing with abuse from my dad and, you know, going through about a year of that as a kid as well. And then getting out of that situation that also just kind of reinforced my own strength. And, you know, unconsciously, I had carried with me this idea of I want to do something, you know, to help other people who maybe can't help themselves or are struggling in some capacity. So I think that was this unconscious thought. And, you know, a lot of our choices, too, uh, or a lot of our traumas really shape our choices, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If anything, it can reinforce you know, our purpose or, uh, you know, our passions in life. So I then 
when I decided I wanted to go to PA school, well, actually, even before that, when I went to college and I was studying biology, you know, prior to going to college, I thought, okay, let me study the hardest thing I can think of. And if I don't like that, then I'll do something else because I, I like a lot of things in general. So that's what I did. That's why, you know, studied biology with an emphasis in molecular biology and, and worked in a research lab for about three years. And, uh, and I, and I loved it. <laughs> I like really liked it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is something that, you know, makes sense to me. And, but working in a lab, I, you know, I need to be around people. I'm such a people person. I love working with people. I just love people in general. So that was my true passion. And then decided, you know, found out what a physician assistant was, decided that's the route I wanted to go down uh, very fast in college when I was about a sophomore, just because of the variety of things that you can do with it. That's what I loved because I love variety. So being able to, you know, it was really appealing to me that I could deliver babies and do surgery and, you know, work in a clinic and do all these different things. That was very appealing to me, which I did end up doing, which is so cool to have experience in all these different fields. And so that's what I did. So I studied physician assistant, got to travel. Um, and, and just throughout my life, there have been moments in my life, you know, very profound moments where I'm like, this is what I meant to do, you know, meant to help people heal in some capacity. And I always tell people I'm so passionate about people feeling good while they're alive <laughs> because everybody dies, you know, everybody um, goes through that in the human experience. And so how can we optimize our human experience, right? Connect with joy, connect with peace, connect with our own ability to, to heal and have health, I think is so important. So even in my, uh, you know, practice working as a PA, that's what was always you know, forward in my mind, people, you know, my, <laughs> uh, people were working with me. They'd always be like, okay, let's go, you know, speed up, let's go. We got to see patients in 10 minutes. I'm like, I have to talk with them and I have to like, you know, let me hold your hand. Like, tell me what's going on. It was always the human experience first. It was always the person first. Um, and so, you know, that has always been something that I prioritized. So Lindsay, part of um, optimizing life and optimizing your health is avoiding environmental risks, environmental threats. And I'm wondering as the daughter of a doctor and as a biology student um, who ultimately made her way to the line belt to go to PA school, what you knew about ticks and tick diseases uh, when you arrived to the Massachusetts line belt? Well, I did learn about it in school and, you which, know, which level of school in elementary school and high school and college where in the Lime belt okay. <laughs> in PA school. Prior to that, I had like randomly heard about it from people who, you know, whose family member maybe was sick with Lyme disease, but it was rare. And yeah, then you're right. Then I moved to um, Massachusetts. And then I, I lived in Connecticut. I lived in different parts of Massachusetts. 
very close to Lyme, <laughs> Connecticut. And so I did hear about it a lot more there. We were learned, we, we were taught and I learned how to treat it in PA school. It was very kind of step-by-step, step, you know, a lot of the things that I learned in school and in general, the textbooks are all antiquated, a lot of the information. So it was treatment or, um, you know, diagnosis, Western blot. I think that was pretty much the only uh, test that was going at the time when I learned about it. But on a practical exam uh, that I had to pass in order to get into my rotational year, one of my patients who were quote unquote patients because they uh, were actors was presenting with Lyme. So it was very interesting. It like gives me goosebumps to this day of, of how, and I think I have to be totally honest. I think I missed it. I think I did not diagnose correctly. And that mortifies me. But uh, I well, did maybe pass that's just, the practical. Is that I did get a foreshadowing? I, right. Uh, I did diagnose an MI that presented very weird uh, <laughs> uh, heart attack, basically. But I did not get the Lyme, right? Foreshadowing. I don't know what you want to call it, but it makes total sense because, you know, again, Lyme is endemic to this area. It can present very, you know, with a variety of different symptoms and I missed it. And you know what it did though? It made me never forget how to diagnose it. So that was always stored in my memory bank because I did not want to fail again. <laughs> I did not want to not pick up on that again. <laughs> well, and, and again, maybe in the spirit of some foreshadowing, you know, you were, you were being prepared for what you were about to encounter and then ultimately where that was going to take you but we'll get there in a second Lindsay let's let's focus a little bit more about um, that training that you received um, were you trained on how to protect yourself from this threat meaning were you trained on how to check yourself and and were you trained on on regularly checking yourself because um, you would uh, find yourself in a position where when you're in the line belt you're going to get bitten repeatedly or were they just teaching you how to how to diagnose this disease when there were clinical presentations? Oh, definitely the latter. I never received like, you know, 101 information on how to protect yourself. Nope. So now so now let's fast forward to Lindsay um, being out and about, right? She's a she's a gal that needs a lot of variety. She's a gal that is going from place to place. She has a heart to help people all over the world. And now you get bitten by a tick. So let's let's unpack that a little bit. Um, where were you? What were you doing? And how did you discover the tick biting you? Well, I was in the Redwoods in California. And I had just met my husband at the time. And we had kind of decided to go on this world trip together, but I was finishing up a, uh, a travel job in outside of Salinas, California. So we were doing a Redwood trip and we were camping there. And I think that was my husband and I, we met and we decided to go traveling together. It was kind of this kismet connection. So it was maybe like our third time hanging out. <laughs> And I have a picture of me hugging a tree, 
you know, of course, <laughs> me lying on top of this tree and I'm hugging it. And, you know, I'm fully kind of clothed, head to toe, covered, you know, in a flannel, leggings, these types of things. And soon after that picture was taken, I felt something on the back of my neck and my husband looked and sure enough, it was a tick. And so it bit me, um, yeah, right in the back of my neck. So he found it. And in school, I didn't learn about proper tick removal. And so we kind of, we did our best at getting the tick out and kind of like, you know, him being able to kind of look for the head or look, you know, as close as it was in the skin to kind of get it out. And that's what he did. And honestly, after that happened, I didn't think about that experience, you know, until six months later. Um, I remember having a conversation with a girlfriend on the phone about getting bitten with a tick, who's also a PA. And I remember confirming with her, I was like, well, Lyme disease isn't endemic to the redwoods. She's like, no, no, I don't think you have to do anything about it. Um, and so that was my experience. Okay. So let's, let's pause there for a second and examine that a little bit further. So you rub your hand across your neck and you feel a bump on the back of your neck. Your boyfriend, now husband, removes it how with his fingers with the tweezers with with what we were camping and we didn't have tweezers so with his fingers and then what did he do with the tick after he pulled it out of your neck uh flushed it down the toilet okay and then after that did you take any steps so for example you know you you folks who are trained as pas uh, you medical professionals of course were giving given training on for example watching if a rash would develop, so did you take any steps to put a circle around the place where, where it was bitten and were you looking in the mirror to see if there was anything developing around your neck? Um, and or did you take any steps to support your immune system so that you could protect yourself from whatever was spit into you, even though you weren't in a, an endemic area, or, or at least you thought you weren't based on the sister science that was exchanged between you and your fellow PA? I think a lot of medical professionals can relate to what I'm about to say. You don't typically think of yourself in that clinical setting and you don't really put your own health in front of <laughs> as a priority, really. And I, you know, totally admit that. And, you know, when I was working as a PA, it was everyone else's health in front of me. You know, if I had a cold or a flu, I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, let me just, uh, you know, do my best to feel okay so I can show up for everyone else. And I took that same mentality, you know, to this situation. And so looking back, I could feel like a sense of shame or guilt or something that I didn't take any of those steps, but that is where I was at, at that point. And so, no, I, I didn't take any prophylactic, you know, care and, and trying to, um, you know, see if there was any rash, see, you know, kind of 
keep track of uh, what was going on, protect my immune system, because honestly, that wasn't a priority for me at the time. Okay. So let's, un let's unpack that a little bit more because I find it to be really interesting and certainly not a, an issue to be ashamed of, right? Um, are those of you in the medical community who had the mindset that you had at that time, do you believe that you're, you know, that you're not going to get sick, so therefore you don't have to take care of yourself? Do you believe that you, you know, you can take care of other people even though you yourself are not in a healthy place? Do you, do you believe you're not entitled to it, that only the people you're serving are entitled to that care? I mean, I don't understand why that would be the mindset, because I don't know how anyone could believe that they could take care of someone else if they themselves were not healthy. Well, I don't think... I exactly resonate with any of those statements. I think it's the caregiver mentality. I think if you are a caregiver um, by nature or by profession or whatever it is, and you kind of resonate with being a caregiver, you naturally just put everyone else in front of yourself and take care of other people. So I don't think I had a conscious thought of, well, I can't get sick or, well, you know, I'm impervious to illness or, well, you know, there was no conscious thought about that. It was more so I'm the caregiver. And so I'm here to give care. And for me, I addressed myself when I was sick. So if I got, you know, I, I did get a lot of colds and flus and stuff like that. And then I would take care of myself during that time. But if I'm totally transparent, which I am being, I didn't take that prophylactic care in general of my health when I was treating other people, that wasn't a priority to me. I was just, you know, as a young medical professional traveling around, it wasn't something that was on my radar. So looking back prior to that specific situation, I mean, I lived in mold-ridden huts in Bolivia. I drank, you know, water and, and got sick from that for a month. There were a lot of situations that I dealt with at the time because honestly, I didn't prioritize my own health. That's not something I learned until after having experienced this. And I love how I have experienced now, now like this prioritization of my health. But I think if I hadn't gone through an experience like this, this awareness wouldn't be there. And so it, it is interesting how that has happened, but no, at the time, it just wasn't a priority. So Lindsay, and I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, unique to medical professionals that they take for granted their immune system or they take for granted their health, because I had, I've had exactly the same experience that you've had as a result of doing this podcast, right? I took my immune system for granted. I took my health for granted. Of course, I was always healthy and my immune system always worked. So why should I worry about it? And then I started to see the very intentional way that people who have gone on this journey have lived their lives. And it's offered me an opportunity and insight into how I should be living more intentionally, right? So I don't think it's necessarily unique to uh, medical professionals, but there is a piece of this I do want to explore with you in a little more detail because one of the bad experiences that I had after a tick bite just before we started this podcast was I called my doctor's office and I asked to go in to be treated prophylactically. And the gatekeeper said to me, you don't need to come in unless you have symptoms. Why are you trying to come in? So I think part of what we, you know, what, what we have here as, as people who are living in the West with a Western 
uh, medicine mindset is that we don't treat until there are symptoms. We don't treat until we're sick. We, you know, we, we just take for granted that our, our, our system is going to remain healthy. And in some cases it is, right? So um, let me ask you another question because ultimately you do get sick, right? You start to get symptoms sometime in, 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 in the next several months after your tick bite. Uh, how long after uh, the tick bite did you begin to um, exhibit symptoms of what you now know to be Lyme disease? Yeah, so it was about maybe three months, uh, anywhere from six weeks to three months. I remember getting like a pretty bad flu when I had just flown to Ireland and we were supposed to go to this, um, you know, camping trip that weekend. And I had to go late because I was just in bed for about three days. And, you know, it felt like a flu at the time. And then after that, I, I did make a little bit of a recovery uh, from that kind of acute illness. And then as the months progressed, I started to get migraines and then it was once a week and then it was like twice a week then it was every other day that really impacted me I'd never had a migraine in my life and then after the migraine started that was when I started to just become a little bit more hyper vigilant of my environment kind of sensitive to smells and basically soon after that, you know, I had this anxiety because I didn't know when I would have these symptoms, you know, when they would present themselves, you know, and at the time, again, I thought, well, it's probably jet lag. So I was treating myself for jet lag. And again, you know, because I'm not thinking, you know, really prioritizing, okay, what, let me sit down, what could be going on in this situation? Like you said, you know, you've never had an experience like this. You're like, okay, well, I'll just kind of treat as I go, like treat the symptom. And that's what I was doing. And so about probably then five, six months in, then I started to get the joint pain. And that was a, a very big symptom for me. Um, you know, just fatigue and general malaise. And by the time we had gotten back to America, that's when I knew something was wrong. Now, you shared with us earlier in the podcast that um, you were taught about the symptoms of Lyme disease. Uh, you, you had a clinical presentation from an actor with uh, symptoms, although you were kind enough to share with us that you didn't, you didn't uh, diagnose <laughs> the actor with Lyme. Um, when did you first start thinking about Lyme disease, uh, despite now having some very classic symptoms that you just described to us? Yeah, so I was in West Virginia and we had just, <laughs> Okay, so I, like a lot of people, push myself. And again, don't prioritize myself. You know, I agree that's not specific to the medical profession, but it, it just happens 
um, I think, you know, I'm just kind of more aware of it because I'm treating everyone else and not myself. We were at this family reunion and we had gone mountain biking. And I remember I was in tears coming back from that mountain biking experience because I couldn't really do it. I had to stop. I was in so much pain. Um, I was scared. Like I didn't know what was going on in my body. And so my husband and I were sitting kind of on the back porch, just kind of processing what had just happened. And at that moment, he had a, a tick on his arm and he like flicked it off. And he was like, remember when you had a tick? I laugh, you know, it's dark humor. Um, and I said, yeah, I do. And then it, it just all clicked. Like in that moment, I just got this like visceral, it, it was just this like, you know, physiological shift for me. I was like, this is Lyme disease. Did I miss it again? Shoot, I missed it again, right? <laughs> um, so, and, and I knew at that moment, I was like, I have to go get um, tested for Lyme disease. And I... I did. I did in West Virginia. And then I took the steps to begin that process of um, treatment. So did you treat with any doctors between the time that you first showed your um, flu symptoms and the time that you finally had the epiphany um, sort of like sort of smashed in your face with the tick <laughs> on your husband's arm uh, that, uh, that you had Lyme disease? I hadn't seen anyone. No, I was traveling mainly international. Um, so, nope. So last week we interviewed a, a brilliant um, uh, researcher who shared with us that uh, there, there's a group of, of people who get bitten by a tick who never get sick, right? Tick bite does not ever affect them because of a number of different factors. There's another subset of people who get bitten by a tick. They present acute symptoms. They get treated. It never becomes chronic. And then there's a third uh, subset of people who get bitten by a tick um, and ultimately become chronically ill. And there are a number of different factors that could cause someone to become chronically ill. And some of them are physiological. Some of them are emotional. And since we have the vital side gal here, I can't help but to ask, um, what do you think was going on with you at that moment that you ultimately be, became chronically ill? Um, were, do, you, do you believe it was um, the immune disruption from, from air travel? Do you believe that you were carrying some trauma with you to share with us that you had some trauma during your childhood that you had to, uh, you had to learn to manage. And, and, and one of the things that, that Dr. Harwood shared with us a couple of weeks ago is that one of every three of his female patients have suffered some form of sexual trauma uh, prior to uh, prior to being diagnosed with Lyme disease, and and he has a whole he had a whole uh, interesting perspective on that. Um, so, what was going on with you, and what were the immunosuppressive events that were going on that caused your body not to be able to fend off um, the microbes that were making you chronically ill? So before I answer that, I just want to preface it with, I think after we've experienced a chronic illness, we always want to do 
this kind of connecting of the dots as to what has happened. And that's satisfying for us as humans, right? We get this um, sense of like almost resolute that we can kind of connect the dots and know that this is, this is really what happened. And so I've done that so many times. I'll never exactly know. And I'm okay with that. And I think there are sometimes, you know, just things that we just don't know and we won't know and we can do our best to kind of gauge. And so what I'm going to be doing is, yeah, hypothesizing what likely for me was the the tipping point. (laughs) But I I think it's more than just, just hypothesizing and trying to get to, I'll use your term, to a place where you you have um, satisfaction or resolute. I think it's also a process of re-engineering, right? If, if there's a process that causes us to get sick, then maybe we can reverse engineer that so that we can we can overcome the illness. So I, I think it's more than just just um, wanting to have a um, an answer. It's it's part of the healing process. Or do you disagree? I think it's a possibility, depending on what those factors are, and maybe some can be prevented but a lot can't. And, you know, in my life and the events that led me, you know, to this moment, there were a lot of experiences that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to change or would change as a result. So yeah, hopefully there are things that are possible to change and and there are definitely in people's experiences, but yeah, in mine, there weren't many that I would have changed that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. But I, I don't think it's about changing because obviously we can't change what's happened in the past, but maybe we can be more intentional about managing it. Maybe we could be more focused on it, right? Because I'm, I'll use your example that you had given us before, right? You were, you were somebody who was a caregiver, right? And because you were a caregiver, you weren't particularly intentional about protecting yourself from threats. You aren't particularly intentional about identifying um, ways of prophylactically protecting yourself. You aren't particularly intentional about those things, but if you now think through how you were living and what kinds of things you were not maybe overcoming or focusing on to heal from, then you now perhaps have a path toward healing that you wouldn't have had if you weren't thinking through, for example, whether or not you dealt with the trauma that you had maybe just put in a box somewhere, or you would, you know, you would um, prepare yourself for air flight differently. Or, I mean, there are a number of different things that, you know, we can unpack here, but um, it doesn't, I, I think it's, I think it's really more focusing on things that we were maybe taking for granted or focus on things that weren't as in, we shouldn't have been, we should have been more intentional about. Not that that's a criticism, but because we all live our lives that way. And that's a path to getting better. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, looking back on my own experience, I did what I could about the things at the time, you know, at the time, like airborne was really popular. Like I would take that on a plane, right? These types of things are like the trauma I had as a kid. I went to 10 years of therapy. Like I did a lot of that work. So, you know, if I were to look back and, you know, put my shoes into the Lindsay of that time, I was doing my best. And, you know, it just isn't always 
going to be the thing that necessarily helps. So then to answer your question about like the different events, I think, you know, my perfect storm of kind of experiencing those chronic symptoms, it it was a combination of things. I think, you know, having dealt with the acute illnesses that I got from traveling and not maybe properly identifying and treating what was going on there, like the parasites and these different things that I was exposed to. Uh, So there was that sort of toxic overload that I did have to deal with that I was um, experiencing. And in addition to that, you know, I, I think that when it comes to trauma, I think there are many modalities that can be um, modalities used to process trauma as a kid. And I don't think those were really that talked about. You know, I went to a lot of talk therapy, which, uh, you know, pretty much every talk therapist that I, I went to, it was like, oh, you're, well, you're good. You seem to be good. Like you seem to be happy. You seem to be living your life. And it wasn't trauma processing um, modalities or, or coping skills that I was taught. And so I think I, of course, when you experience, you know, abuse and trauma, that does live with you and it comes out in different ways, you know, in the physical body, in kind of different situations. And so I think that was a combination of as a child, having experienced that trauma, my primary response kind of being this fight or flight response as a a mechanism of survival, get out, run away and, or, or stay and fight. And so I think throughout my life that had been kind of my go-to response when things got tough and challenging and that had become this pattern. So yeah, there was this nervous system dysregulation as a result of trauma. There was a toxic overload and yeah, brought me to that tipping point or, you know, my perfect storm of my body basically saying, okay, no more. Can't handle Lindsay, it anymore. We, we interviewed a fellow named um, Bob uh, Miller last week. And one of the things he shared with us is that we're, we're already living in a toxic pool, all of us. Between the plastics that we are, you know, we're coming in contact with, the mold we're regularly coming in contact with, the EMFs that we're coming in contact with, the changes in our diet. And, and he was attributing sort of this toxic pool that we're all sort of swimming in as the reason why Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease is so much more prevalent today than it was 50 years, 100 years, 150 years ago. And again, there are a lot of different people who have different theories about why that's the case. But his theory is we're living in sort of toxic pool all the time. And then, of course, we have Lindsay, who's out and about going to all these foreign countries and bouncing around and now coming in contact with parasites and coming in contact with, you know, with water that isn't, that isn't um, potable. And, and, and you have all of this sort of coming together at the same time and then tick bite, right? And when you bring that whole combination together where we're all now pre, we all now have an 
increased predisposition to getting sick from uh, you know, these types of microbes because we're just swimming in this toxic pool generally. And then you bring even more you know, toxicity to, um, to your experience, you then just get sick, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, yeah, that was my perfect storm and couldn't handle <laughs> after that tick bite, you know, my body couldn't handle anymore. So Matt's going to pick up from here and he's going to talk to you about, about your, your treatment journey. But I, I, I'm interested in talking with you for a couple of more minutes about the, um, about the fight or flight mode and how your childhood trauma put you in a position where you were in and out of fight or flight, maybe more often than, than someone who would not have been in trauma uh, in that traumatic experience and how that was immune disrupting as well. Can you, can you unpack that for me a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, when we have experienced a traumatic event, whether that's psychological, you know, physical, mental, emotional, our nervous systems respond, specifically the autonomic nervous system responds in order to keep us alive. And that's what our survival responses are meant to do. And they're meant to be turned on when we need them to be, you know, I needed that response to be turned on as a child. Um, not to say that's the only way that that turns on, you know, if we're driving on the freeway and we stop short because the car stops in front of us, you can feel that fight or flight response turn on. And so there are many ways that we go in and out of these survival responses throughout the day. I just happen to be exposed to a prolonged time, you know, about a year of psychological and physical abuse and that kind of being my primary response to keep me alive. And so the survival responses are meant to keep you alive. But because I had prolonged exposure to this danger, um, as many people do, prolonged exposure to a virus, prolonged exposure, you know, to a mold-ridden house, these different experiences that can cause our nervous systems to be kind of dysregulated in this way, then we can get into that chronic state of survival or chronic fight or flight or chronic freeze response. And what happens when we are stuck in this state of survival is we, our, our body is hyper inflamed. I mean, we have this inflammation that exists. We're hypervigilant. We're focused on surviving. So how do we get out of this danger? And so you know, there's a combination of, of symptoms that can occur. The heart can beat faster. You can breathe faster. Blood flow gets sent to the hands and the feet, not vital organ systems that help you to digest and metabolize and metabolize and, um, and rest or, or sleep, right? Sleep can be greatly impacted. We're, we're just only focused on getting out of danger. And so it negatively impacts the body when we're in that chronic state of stress, that chronic stress response, it impacts our physiology, our hormones, you know, how we're, you know, able to connect with other people. There's so many areas of our lives that are impacted, but one of them is the immune system. Um, the blood brain barrier in particular, this, these blood vessels in our body, like responsible for uh, weeding out toxins can become more permeable. So we're more susceptible, you know, and it's harder to fight off infections. Our immune systems are 
not crucial to our survival when a danger is present. That's acute in that way. So the emphasis is taken off of the immune system. And so that can definitely have those long-term effects if we are in that chronic stress response as opposed to that kind of balanced um, responses we have throughout the day. So Lindsay, you argued that the fight or flight mode or the triggering of your survival software is a good thing in an acute arena under the right circumstances, but having too much of it for too long where it becomes chronic, of course, is not a good thing, right? And so you believe because you were exposed to prolonged trauma, ultimately that fight or flight mode became sort of a, an emotional home for you. And you were constantly in a place where your, um, your body was in fight or flight, even though you didn't have any threats triggering the, the, the response. Right. So the threat was present for about a year. And then my brain, you know, our brains being malleable and neuroplastic was kind of almost, you know, can get addicted to this response. And this was the trauma response that I was in, you know, this constant cortisol and adrenaline production that I was experiencing as a result of that. And so after that happened, that did become my primary response. It wasn't always 24 seven, um, but at that point it was kind of my go-to if a challenging or perceived dangerous event happened, then my brain and then my body would go into this response, you know, something that maybe mirrored the experience of like a change, a move, um, you know, these types of things. And, and sometimes we don't know, sometimes we don't know exactly why it gets triggered, but it, it you know, primarily did for me as a result. So one of the things we learned from Dr. Diane Mueller was that uh, when we get into this loop, our cortisol receptors ultimately become um, retarded and they do not now properly trigger uh, through the HPA axis, the, um, the um, adrenaline. And it's sort of like, it sort of becomes this loop, right? Where you're, you're getting more adrenaline, you're getting more adrenaline, you're getting more adrenaline because it's not, because the triggers have now become damaged because you're sort of in that loop. So talk to us about what it was like for you. And do you agree with Dr. Mueller that the, that the loop develops and there's a physiological loop that's developing as a result of you having had this prolonged experience of trauma? Yeah. So yeah, that stress response, that HPA access, that's, you know, on the cyclical loop. And it's interesting because this can be triggered, like you said, without the danger being present simply as a result of our brains responding to traumatic events. And again, trauma doesn't have to be specific to a big T trauma. Like I experienced abuse. It, it can be, um, you know, a, a small car crash or, a diagnosis that your dad received. It, it can be so many different things, you know, little T traumas that may have added up and, you know, happened throughout your life that you're not even aware of. And I think, you know, everyone is so different in how this can be kind of triggered in this way. 
but yeah, that's exactly what happens. And there can be, you know, it, sometimes it, there's a little bit of confusion of like, okay, well, I went and got my cortisol tested and, you know, some people are high, some people are low. I think ultimately it's this dysregulation of cortisol that happens because our bodies maybe have run out of cortisol and they can't produce anymore as a result, or, you know, we have that increase and, and there's just this fluctuation. I think that's what I would kind of go off of if you're thinking about the actual lab result. There is this dysregulation. So Lindsay, talk to us more about your treatment now, right? So you had this perfect storm and you had this tick bite, you had these parasites, and you had a lot of other environmental triggers as well and trauma triggers. So once you had this diagnosis and you were really sick, what was your first course of action to treat? Well, having been trained in kind of that typical, you know, um, Western medical training, I, you know, was aware that there was a bacterial infection. So I started with antibiotics, I think that's, you know, what a lot of people start with. Um, and so I was on that for about two months, uh, until I noticed that there was no change. And then I continued that course of treatment. And then as just as a result of kind of seeing a couple different practitioners, you know, I had one practitioner tell me, well, you know, you're a young woman, you'll probably just grow out of it and get better, just kind of like treat the depression. And uh, which was confusing because I didn't think I was depressed. I, you know, knew I was sick. And I had been to a couple different practitioners and then I was kind of thinking, okay, I have to go beyond what I know beyond this kind of um, Western medicine. And that's when I found a couple uh, integrative and functional docs uh, that started, you know, looking at the parasites, looking at, um, you know, co-infections -inf that started kind of treating the co-infections, you know, going down a detox path and, that definitely resonated with me more because I just wasn't seeing any results uh, with like the current path that I had been on. So Lindsay, you were diagnosed with these parasitic infections while you were in rural Africa, right? And they never did anything to treat you at that time. So you had to wait until you saw a more natural doctor to treat those parasites. So when I was in Bolivia, I did get sick with just as a result of history, I knew it was a parasite. So I actually wasn't diagnosed, like there was no lab result. So it wasn't until, you know, years later that I did get that diagnosis. And that was from stool samples from an integrative practitioner. So at the time, at the time, I think I did treat with like a general antibiotic treatment, but I never got that diagnosis of having like a parasitic infection. So by the time I did see an integrative practitioner years later, yeah, that's when I started treating for that. Gotcha. And I apologize, Lindsay, I believe it was, it was South America. I said Africa. I know you were in Africa at one point, but I think you got the parasites in South America, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's what I think. <laughs> so That's but, what I believe to be true. But what's really interesting here is so many people all the time ask us at Tick Bootcamp, how do I know if I have parasites? What testing is available? So 
do you recall what testing you did through your natural doctor to determine that you actually had parasites? I don't know what the exact test was. And at this point, you know, years later, I know there are a lot of different tests, but it was a stool sample test. And I don't know the exact name of the test. I know he still does it because I'm still friends with him today. But yeah, it was a, a, a stool sample. Are you comfortable sharing the name of the doctor? Yeah, Dr. Wallace Taylor. He's here in Austin, Texas, and he's still a good buddy of mine. So talk to us about the transition. So obviously the antibiotics weren't helping. And I guess before I ask this question, how long in total were you on antibiotics for before you made that pivot away from Western medicine and antibiotics? I was on antibiotics for about, I think it was about three months. And at one point I had tried to go off of them and it was almost, I mean, and I don't really know how to describe it because I had never heard anything like this before, but it was almost like I had developed, like my body had developed this addiction to taking them and I was uncomfortable getting off of them. And I told my practitioner at the time and he was like, well, you know, just keep taking them. So I kept taking them. Um, so by the time I saw Dr. Taylor, I was, you know, had already been on this long course of antibiotics and I really wanted to get off. Uh, it, it just wasn't, <laughs> I knew ultimately that for the short term, my body was addicted, but for the long term, you know, it was ruining my gut biome. And so I knew I wanted to get off. So, uh, yeah, it was about at that three, four month mark that I did get off. I'm pretty sure that's what I did. And that dependency or that need to stand antibiotics to feel quote unquote well or partially well is not uncommon. And we call it the antibiotic loop where people will go off, feel worse again, and then have to go back on antibiotics and they get stuck in this cycle or this loop until they find another way to ultimately get themselves back to health. So now when you're treating with Dr. Taylor, talk to us about what you were doing specifically now outside of the Western and antibiotic world to help treat your Lyme disease, knowing that the antibiotics weren't really effective in your treatment? So there were like a number of prescription medications that I did use at the time to kind of treat, you know, I was on an antiparasitic. Uh, it, it's tough to really recall exactly what I was on because I did a lot and there were a lot of supplements. So there were like natural supplement, you know, supplements, there were the medications, and then they were the ones that were used for detox. And, you know, then there were, uh, you know, NAD, IV treatments, um, there were uh, other well, types of Sorry, mm -hmm. give us a little more detail about the ones you do remember. It's like NAD, for example, what is NAD and what was it used for and how did it work for you? And, let, and if you can, whatever you recall, as far as, you know, obviously you're on a lot of pharmaceuticals, herbs and detox tools, whatever you can remember, if you can let us know what those tools were and how they were effective or not effective in your healing journey. So I know that this podcast, you know, it, people do get a lot of help kind of hearing from what other people, what they did exactly. But for me, I can't really give specifics as to what helped and what didn't. So I'm not totally, you know, um, sure that that is helpful information because at the time I had done so much. And so it was really hard to link, like, this is the exact thing that worked. You know, I was on Myers cocktails and 
NAD and, and like all these different um, IV treatments, but even, I mean, you know, with having that, you know, neuro aspect being impacted at the time, at the time, I didn't even know what was like really helping. And so looking back now, I'm like, it's hard to remember what exactly I did. And it's hard to recall what exactly helped. And so I can't be truly like exactly specific. Um, those were a couple of the cocktails that, you know, were recommended at the time supplements, but honestly, I can't even tell you which exact supplements were the ones that I took. Um, I had gone through so much. And at one point I was on 80 supplements, so I wouldn't even feel comfortable sharing what supplements I took because I think everyone is so specific and there's so many different treatments that I wouldn't be able to say this is exactly what worked and, and this didn't. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for being so honest. And I totally appreciate that and understand what you're saying. But I do want to now ask as a follow-up to that, how long were you on these supplements for, even if they were rotating, you know, things in and out of this, this collection of things you were taking to heal and give us an idea as to how your health improved over time with Dr. Taylor. So what I did with Dr. Taylor and what our goal really was, and, you know, together we, we tried things, some things made me feel worse and, you know, he's very flexible and he's very open and he knows like, okay, if this is too much, we stop, or if this doesn't work, you know, and I always had that open and transparent conversation with him. We got to a point, I think it was, I mean, honestly, about six months into the treatments and, and all the different supplements I was taking at one point, I just couldn't take anymore. I couldn't physically take any more supplements. I wasn't feeling better. You know, at one point I was suicidal and, uh, you know, I was having these Herx reactions and I didn't know what was working. I was confused. I was disheartened. And it's even hard for me to think about now what exactly, like how much did, was I able to treat how much of that Lyme bacteria was I able to, you know, really treat how much was I able to detox? I don't know, you know, to be honest, I do not know if there is a time where you're like, okay, you're fully detoxed and now you can live your life again. Right. We, we judge, um, our prognosis. We, we judge our illness by yes, lab results, but also by how we feel. And so I was still feeling so crappy at that time, you know, like six, seven months in, and I know that we worked really hard on, you know, doing that fair amount of detox and treating, um, was I feeling better? No. And that's when I really started to think about what else is there? What else can I do? So Lindsay, were there any improvements, meaning were you just still neurologically impaired, but there were some gains in other symptoms that weren't neuro related, or were you just overall whole body not feeling better in general? The latter. I, okay. I would like to think that um, treatment and like detox wise, I was doing good for my body, but I could not feel it. 
I could not feel the positive results. What, one of the things that I think is not talked about enough in the community is when we're that ill, and I can relate to being that neurologically impaired, it's hard for us without a loved one to communicate with our medical professionals how we're doing because we are so limited cognitively when we're in the throes of it. So how are you communicating with your doctor or not communicating with your doctor that you weren't getting better and what was going on with your health over the six to seven month window of treating with Dr. Taylor? I think what I, I mean, how I kind of communicated with him, you know, I, my husband, my partner, like very, very open to helping me communicating with, you know, Dr. Taylor and he was very helpful in that, you know, my, my family played a role too, you know, my mom, my sister, and they would help communicate uh, to Dr. Taylor. And, and, you know, sometimes I would feel okay, but then it would go away. Right. And then I would plateau again. And so I would see him and I would have good news and then I would plateau or get worse. And then I would have bad news. And so, you know, he was very compassionate in that he took my phone calls and, you know, he was really understanding. And the thing about him was he didn't give up and he always was looking for the next thing, whether that was brain retraining, whether that was like something totally weird and off grid. And he was like, why don't you go and try this? And that's something that I can always appreciate is even though I didn't physically feel better, like he had that growth mindset that I needed in order to heal. So now the seven month window, you're just trying thing after thing, after thing, after thing and not making progress. And then what was next ultimately? So you said you had to look for that next thing to heal and you're about seven months in. What was next after this time period? At that point, I had kind of, you know, been talking with a lot of different people. I had gone to like a support group. I had, you know, gone on social media. I had tried, you know, just kind of went to all of the resources that I, I knew. I talked to people who maybe had dealt with Lyme disease or something similar. And so I was trying these different things. Um, you know, I had started therapy. I started biomagnetism treatment in Buda, Texas. Um, I just kind of was doing anything I could. I, I was seeing a chiropractor at that point. You know, there were just a lot of different avenues. Like every day I was going to an appointment and surviving and, you know, really tr trying to live. And that that's the point that I found out about brain retraining. And I read it on a blog post and you know, about inflammation that occurs in the body as a result of the chronic stress response. And to me, I needed an empowering tool that I could use at home. I was tired of these passive approaches and outsourcing my health to all of these different practitioners. And I think we can feel so disconnected from ourselves, so disheartened by our bodies. Why aren't I feeling better? I'm doing all the right things. I'm trying so hard and I still feel this way, what else is there? And that's where I was. And, you know, learning about, okay, the brain is always communicating with the body. And when you're stuck in a state of chronic stress, that's physiologically being communicated to the rest of the body and the body's responding. And I thought, yeah, 
that makes a lot of sense because in my mind, I'm thinking, why aren't all of these things that I'm doing working? Why aren't I feeling a difference? And, you know, so having something I could use at home (laughs) and do myself was something that I really wanted to do because I felt like going from appointment to appointment and outsourcing all my health, all my, you know, yeah, health, my healing, it was so tiring. And I felt so disconnected, you know, and, and frustrated and angry and sad and all the emotions. So it was an approach that really resonated with me um, in that way. So clearly brain retraining, it was pivotal in your healing journey, but I want to just ask you a question upfront about this because one of the things we hear all the time, and I think because of medical trauma and because of being not believed by doctors, when we hear something about brain retraining, we think about therapy and it's all in our head. And I'm having a hard time understanding the difference between saying it's, is it in your head? And I know your answer, Lindsay, to that is no, it's not all in your head. But then saying your brain is sending signals to your body based on chronic stress and chronic illness. But if you still have pathogens, if you still have Lyme bacteria and mold exposure and mycotoxins and environmental toxins in your body, how is treating the brain going to heal your body? And that's the part that I'm a little fuzzy on. So can you, can you elaborate on that first, please? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be the first one to say, I don't believe simply addressing the brain is the only way to go. The body does need to be addressed. The physical body, you know, when we have a cut and we have an infection, you know, that's here on my hand. The brain is the communication of the body. This is like the epicenter for the body, able to tell the body like, yes, you have a cut on your hand. Let's send inflammation there. Let's send information as well in order to address this. And so there's always this brain and body communication happening. So I think it's all in your head. When practitioners say that, they're really referring to the psychological component the stress response, you are stressed out. (laughs) You know, you're just stressed out. I hate that. (laughs) Because it's not just that you're stressed out, because that puts the blame on your psyche, your, you know, psychological health. And it's not only that the nervous system plays a big role in this. And it's not your fault. And so saying it's all in your head, that context that a lot of practitioners say it, is just addressing that psychological component, but it's not, it's the physical, it's the mental, it's the emotional, it's the brain communicating with the body. And yes, there is that brain body communication, but the body communicates right back to the brain. And so it's this combination of the brain and the body always communicating with each other. So if you think, if you break that down, you're stressed out and you think of that word stress and then you think of the word chronic stress. And so that's not just stress that exists here and solely here. We know this information we've learned within the past two decades of learning about neuroplasticity and the malleability of the brain and how the brain impacts the body and parts of the brain that light up when we have certain thoughts or we feel certain things this communication is always taking place. And so there's no localization happening in the body to say that the brain 
it's all happening in the head means that there's a disconnection from the head and the body. And that's just not true. And now we have the information to prove that it's the communication and it's always happening, whether we're conscious of that or not. So can the brain or the nervous system get stuck in a state or a state of fight or flight, even after an infection has been cleared? Meaning if people are able to successfully manage the Lyme bacteria and whether or not you believe you can fully clear it or not, if you're managing the bacteria and your immune system is healthy and is no longer a viable threat, can your mind and can your nervous system and can your body get stuck in fight or flight, keeping you symptomatic, even though your immune system may be managing the pathogens better than before? Yes. And that's very well what could have happened with me. You know, and, and that is what's so amazing and terrifying about the brain is that the brain <laughs> can be communicating danger when no danger is present. So we see that, you know, when people have PTSD, you know, they come back from war, they've experienced a very traumatic situation and that's replaying in their heads, in their bodies back at home in a safe environment, right? What we can logically perceive as safe, but it's not about the actual physical danger that's present at this point. Our brains are malleable, they're neuroplastic, they're always changing, always rewiring. And so, you know, brain retraining, this term, it kind of is a little bit confusing because we're training our brains all of the time. (laughs) Your listeners are training the brain every time they listen to an episode on your podcast. We're doing it every day, all day, and we're not aware of it. So this, this process, it's intentionally changing the brain for a way that helps you to feel good. And so really communicating to the brain and the body, like this danger is no longer present and we need to connect to that safety in our lives in order to feel good. So that's often the people that I work with today. That's very well what could have happened with me. They've seen all the practitioners They've been through the ringer. They're still symptomatic. That's not always the case, but it could very well be what's going on is the brain is still communicating this danger that's present and the body is responding in this symptomatic way. And Lindsay, I think there are a lot of people that are in that particular situation where they've done everything and their body may be in a good place, but they're still symptomatic. And I know, you know, you talk about all the time how if you're in a persistent chronic state of anxiety, fatigue, pain, dizziness, stress, and even more things like that, and you're not making improvement, you should really look at brain retraining and and neuroplasticity, which I want to ask you more about that term as well. So I just want to take a pause here to say, if people are listening and they're in that situation, they really should reach out to you on its vital side. Is it vitalside.com, Lindsay? Vital-side.com. Vital-side.com to learn more about you. Your, your programs, because I think that is the missing piece of the puzzle for many people. And we've been told by a lot of people that they were in that same situation you just described, where they've done everything and they couldn't figure out what was missing. They have done a brain retraining program and they finally got their health back. So I think that's a really powerful piece. And many people need that and don't even know that's what's going on in their bodies or in their, in their minds or their brains. So, but talk to us about neuroplasticity, because it sounds like a really intimidating word, but I think it's a really powerful word. And we keep saying brain retraining, but to me, it's almost like the reverse, like where we're unlearning this 
response to something bad going on in our bodies that is no longer there. So we have to kind of unlearn bad behavior in our brain or unlearn this, this bad reaction to bad things going on after it's gone, right? So for me, it's kind of like a little backwards, right? So what is neuroplasticity and how is that connected to brain retraining and the programs you offer? So neuroplasticity, so neuro meaning of related to the brain, plasticity meaning malleability, ability to change. And so our brains change so fast within milliseconds. And so we learn a new fact. We quickly learn how to strum, you know, this chord, strum on the guitar. We learn that our brain is making a change. You know, we're creating new neural pathways in the brain associated to this new task. And that's how fast our brains can change. But in order to create long lasting, sustainable changes, we need repetition. We need time. We need consolidation. (laughs) We need sleeping on, you know, this new information, implementing and integrating this information into our day-to-day lives. And so, you know, whether you want to call it to brain retraining, you know, rewiring, unlearning, there's so many synonymous terms because it's this process of kind of understanding the brain is responding in this way. Danger survival, sympathetic dominance. Okay. Now that we have this awareness, how do we then get to that ability to connect with safety, you know, parasympathetic dominance, rest and digest? How do we connect with the neurotransmitters that make us feel good, the serotonin, the oxytocin? This is likely something we haven't been able to connect with in quite some time. And I I want to kind of pause for a second and just clarify the difference between mindset and the nervous system, because I think a lot of times this can be very confusing for people (laughs) having a positive mindset. You know, we hear a lot about toxic positivity. And I think oftentimes there can be this confusion of like, oh, well, if I think positively, um, then I will feel better. And then a lot of people say, well, hey, wait, that discounts the very real emotions that I have, the grief, the sadness, like the pain that I feel, right? The symptom that I actually experience. And so what happens is mindset is a different part of our brains. So with the nervous system and how it's impacted by a trauma, what I mentioned earlier was the autonomic nervous system. And then what's also impacted is our limbic brains, you know, our emotional mammalian thinking, reacting brains. We have reptilian brain, we have that mammalian brain. These are being impacted as a result of a traumatic situation. And so then that limbic brain, that emotional, that feeling, that reactive brain, all of a sudden, that's the one responding instead of our, you know, neocortex, our prefrontal cortex, our decision-making brain, our, um, you know, fully functioning, like this is how we make a decision that works for us. That no longer is the one that 
is primarily responding, right? It's our kind of primal natural survival response. That's what's happening. Our emotional brains then are also dominant and responding in this way. Our stress hormones are being released. And so what happens is we need to address those parts of the brain. We need to regulate our nervous systems, becoming aware that these responses are very real. It's nothing that was your fault. It's nothing that you did wrong. It's a survival mechanism that is something that is meant to help us and keep us alive and sustain us as humans. But right now it's stuck in this chronic state of stress. So being able to address that limbic brain, being able to address the autonomic nervous system, slowly shift out of that survival state. And we take steps in order to do that, in order to shift that response. But what happens is as a result, when we begin to shift out of this state of survival, we don't even have to directly address mindset. That comes later. And so that's not the piece that we lead with because our prefrontal cortexes are responsible for that kind of mindset shift. And so we're not primarily responding in that way. We need to address, you know, the, the autonomic nervous system. We need to address that limbic brain first And then later on, then you may, okay, well, these tools that I'm using, these mental exercises that I'm using in order to address the survival response are helping me to connect with um, like feeling a sense of calm. Okay, maybe that kind of feeling comes first because we're dimming down that limbic response, that emotional feeling reactive brain in that hypervigilant, hyperinflammatory way. And we're connecting with that state of calm. Okay then perhaps doing that regularly can lead to like feeling more calm in your life. And then maybe you're able to connect with feeling a sense of gratitude, right? And then that mindset uh, shift occurs, but the nervous system has to be addressed first. And so if you're listening to this today and you're thinking, I can't think positively, I don't feel good. I can't connect with anything good that's happening that's not your fault. And you're not alone in this. This is the nervous system responding and we can shift and change the nervous system first before we address that mindset piece. And that will come and that can come as a result of this retraining. Lizzie, I just want to tell you that that was one of the most powerful things we've ever heard on this podcast. And thank you for taking time to stop and explain that to us because that is brilliant. And I think that needs to be shared with the entire community and yelled from a mountaintop because that is really important information that frankly, I didn't, I didn't fully understand until you explained it. And I think that's really, really powerful content that needs to be shared more. So thank you for that. Now, I do want to ask you a quick question though, because in in your website and in researching, you know, a lot of the work that you do, you talk about neuroplasticity, not only can it change the patterns of your mind, but it could also influence change in your genetic expression. And we recently interviewed Bob Miller, as, uh, as Rich had noted earlier, and he's, he really focuses on genetic expressions pertaining to chronic illness, but, but specifically chronic tick-borne illnesses and chronic Lyme disease. And he goes over the top dozen or so genetic mutations that are common in chronic Lyme patients and chronic tick-borne illness patients that need to be looked at to help them overcome some hurdles in their healing journey. So I'm curious about the overlap between the work being done by Bob Miller, 
which is this cutting edge genetics works for the chronic Lyme community, but also combining that with your neural plasticity and how it can change your genetic expression by using brain retraining and, and how they're related if they are at all. Yeah, so definitely related. And what I see is this symbiosis happening because someone like Bob Miller, who is doing a lot of research and kind of understanding this information, very, very important. Another subset of that is understanding the concept of epigenetics, the ability to change your genetic expression. And simple, simple example here, uh, you know, when uh, a stressful event occurs and that cortisol is released in our bodies, our basically hormones are able to go through into the cell and through this process of transcription, able to communicate to our genes, how to be expressed in new and different ways. That's what cortisol does. That's what dopamine does. And so, you know, cortisol being, you know, your major stress hormone, dopamine being a feel good, you know, happy neurochemical um, that gets expressed when we laugh. And so being able to connect with those feel good neurochemicals actually shifts and changes the way your genes can be expressed and so do other things. And so I'm just using this one example, environment changes that, you know, um, there are different things that we're exposed to. There's, there's so many things that can change our genetic expression, but what I always look for in my practice is what is possible for me, right? What do I, what am I able to shift and change? So, you know, maybe you're not able to shift and change your high stress job that you're working you know, nine to five at, but I'm able to change um, what I pay attention to on my lunch break. How can I release feel good neurochemicals that can make a difference in the way that my genes are being expressed? And it can be as simple as choosing to watch a funny stand up <laughs> your favorite comedian on your phone and laugh and actually express that neurochemical and have that be uh, a process that actually takes place in your cellular structure to make a change. And it, it is, you know, there, there are some incredible people out there who are studying this and have written amazing books like Dr. Bruce Lipton being, you know, a huge player in epigenetics. And I think just simply the concept of knowing that we can make changes to our genetic expression is so powerful within itself. And, and that's what I'm always looking for is empowering tools that we can use at home to make those shifts. So that can play a huge role in the work that Bob Miller is doing. That can be a symbiotic, you know, relationship of like identifying those things. How can we change them? And what can yeah. we do to stay ahead of that? And I think this is really important information because we've been challenged the past several weeks when we start telling people about how your genetic expression can be contributing to your chronic illness. And then people get upset and say, well, wait a second, I can't control that. That's how I was born. And our, our response is, well, there is a couple of factors there. The first factor is you can offset the genetic mutation by using supplements and diet and food, but there's also ways to look more upstream 
and hit it from a more upstream approach as well that Dr. Miller talked to us about on, on his podcast, which is really the second area. But now you're giving us a third area, which is using brain retraining and neuroplasticity to control the expression of your genes to overcome some of these genetic mutations and allow your body to heal, right? So when people think, I don't want to hear about genetic mutations or I don't want to hear about genes because I can't control that. You really can. And it can be a powerful tool to help you overcome your illness. So I think that was a really nice addition to what we learned from Dr. Miller. So thank you for that piece of it. So I, I do want to circle back now to your journey though. So you, you find, a, find out about brain retraining on a blog and you start to probably geek out and learn all about it clearly because now you're like one of the leaders in this, this community. So tell us about what you learned and how you applied it to your own healing journey. Well, First, I took it day by day because like you, I had trouble reading. I was like, okay, I'd read like a paragraph and I'd be like, okay, don't remember that. Got to take a break. I, I did get my hands on, I mean, audiobooks were my, the way that I went at the time, you know, that was something that was really important to me. And I think I mentioned this earlier, I'm a very zero to a hundred person. So I was like, okay, even in this state, I'm like, all right, this is what resonates with me so hard. <laughs> I need to figure out how I can integrate this and apply this to my life with the capacity that I'm at today. So I always took that approach, like, okay, day by day, you know, what is possible for me? What can I include in my own healing? So I read as much as I could, um, you know, I think I, one of the first people I started with was Joe Dispenza, um, you know, then I went to Candace Pert, Molecules of Emotion and, uh, you know, Bruce Lipton, Norman Deutsch, uh, you know, audiobooks, And then I, I wanted the application. And I, you know, started to do like find different programs, um, you know, figure out what was actually utilizing the application method of some of this information that I was learning, um, you know, and, and it was interesting what I learned. And, and even through books like, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, he talks a lot about OCD and he has this like four-step approach that he was using on people with OCD. And it was just, okay, cool. I'm learning about the integration piece. And to me, that was so important. And with the, the listening and the work, I started to kind of apply it to my own life and figured out what really worked for me. And, and I'm a very kinesthetic, physical <laughs> learner. And, and I'm also auditory and I'm also visual. <laughs> like I, I like all of the things I like this immersive experience. And so I really kind of started to utilize a lot of what I learned and, and find like figure out creative ways to kind of integrate it into my own life. And I did, and I'm very thankful for, you know, my research. I'm, I'm thankful for the programs I, I did. I am thankful for learning. I, I ended up throughout that time taking, uh, you know, when I started to feel better, I started taking a, a neuro-linguistic programming course because I was like, I think a lot of this information comes from here. I want to learn more. Uh, so, I, you know, I started doing that and, and however much I could, just little by little, step by step, day by day, as much as I could, as much as what was that, you know, my capacity and, and, and I did and, you know, within a couple of really weeks, I, I started to notice a shift like I went to a neighbor's, I live in Texas, right? So I went to a neighbor's crawfish broil in their backyard. And I was there for 30 minutes 
And I remember looking around and I had, a, I, I, had, I, was, I had this like epiphany and also this like panic moment of panic. I was like, I'm at a social event for 30 minutes and I haven't thought about my symptoms once. I haven't experienced a symptom. This is amazing. I better go back home now. And I did. And I went back home, but I was just so thankful that I was able to get out and to do that and have that experience. I was over the moon. And I think it was at that point where I thought, yes, like there is something to this, right there. Like my brain is being impacted and this is huge and I I need to learn more. So that's what, you know, continued my journey for me. And, you know, this isn't for everyone, but that's when I started to retrain getting off of some of my supplements, um, eventually getting off of all of my supplements. Uh, and you know, starting to connect with my physical body and, and movement, you know, before, before I got sick, I was really big into yoga and I would do headstands and, you know, a lot of very active stuff. And at one point I couldn't move my arm to reach over my head to wash my hair. And so that's where I started y'all. Like people say, well, where do I start? Start with where you are today, how you present today. This is where you start. There's nothing you have to do other than show up for yourself. Be here with yourself. Know that, okay, I can't wash my hair. I can't reach my head over my hair to wash myself. That's where I start. And I'm was learning these mental exercises. I call them mental exercises, though they're much more than that. They're, they impact, you know, like the physical body, uh, visualization techniques, mental rehearsal, these types of techniques that were so beneficial. And that's where I started. I started lifting my arm, you know, I couldn't lift right, uh, you know, 90 degrees. And so I started it like, okay, 60 degrees. And then I'd go through this mental rehearsal, training my brain, training my body to feel something different, to move in a different way. And I trained in that way in order to get to standing on my head again, like that's where I started. And it did take me about nine months, but that was my process. And that was my journey. And little by little, every day, I use these mental exercises to eat the foods I I wanted to eat again. You know, I, I wanted to eat a pizza. I wanted to drink a beer. Like that's what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, that's what, (laughs) these are the things I want to do. I want to get back to food. I want to get back to life. I want to be able to you know, go to a friend's birthday party and be able to have a piece of cake and not worry that this is something that's going to impact the rest of my body. Uh, You know, I want to be able to travel to move my physical body, all of these things. And that's what I did. And so it did not look perfect. It was not linear. And there were times I had to do a lot of experimentation to figure out, well, you know, what can work for me? How can I change this? What can I do differently? But ultimately, it was that consistency, that repetition, that uh, commitment. It was me committing to myself. This is the life that I want, that I deserve, that I am going to live. And so I'm going to train myself to get here, you know, physically, um, you know, mentally, (laughs) all of the things emotionally using these exercises. And sure enough, that's what I did. So I just want to put this in perspective again. So you were so neurologically impaired, you could barely communicate. Well, you couldn't even communicate with your doctor. 
you were not able to really read, you'd noted, right? You could only listen to audiobooks. You couldn't lift your arm beyond your chest. So you were very physically limited as well as neurologically limited. And I know from your pre-interview questionnaire that after eight months of brain retraining, you were surfing on a beach in Costa Rica and able to eat, drink, and do anything you wanted, right? I mean, that's really, really powerful. So, I mean, talk to us about, about what life was like after that eight to nine months and you realized, oh my goodness, I have my life back. Like what kind of epiphany that was for you? Yeah, so I do want to just point out at that point when I was doing that, I was nervous. I was anxious. It does not look perfect. Like it's scary. Healing is scary when you have been living like this. You know, I say, yeah, my story of healing, it was a little over a year, which in the scheme of things is such a small amount of time, but it feels like forever. No matter, you know, if you've been dealing with this 20 years, 50 years, four months, like this is your life that's being impacted every day. And so it is a significant chunk of time, no matter how long you've been dealing with this. So it was scary. It was so scary. I was in Costa Rica and I was like, okay, taking it easy. You know, like, uh, we were talking about earlier with rich, like I was like, okay, now I'm prioritizing my health. Like I'm putting myself first. This is scary. Uh, let's take some surfing lessons. And we did, and I was surfing and okay, let's eat a pizza and okay. And it was incredible. Like the best pizza I've ever had everything I was doing. There was a little bit of anxiety, anxiety to it. Like, and then there was this just absolute gratitude and the fact that I was there, the fact that I could do it, like, you know, it still brings tears to my eyes because there's not a day that goes by that I am not so thankful you know, for my physical body and the power (laughs) um, that I have, my brain, my nervous system, like, and that's, what's so incredible about this work is you are so naturally resilient. Our bodies are designed to live. (laughs) Our bodies, our nervous systems, they want you to live. And so being able to connect with that and how I kind of put it is set your brain and body communication up for the sustainable environment. So the rest of your body can function. You know, you're, you can access that parasympathetic growth and repair response. You can, your immune system can start to work for itself. you can, you can start to digest food. There's so many systems that you're setting up for success. And that's what we're doing is we're providing our bodies with that environment, that communication in order to do that. And so, yeah, not a day that goes by that I'm not thankful. And so I was there, I was scared and I did it anyway. (laughs) And then when I got back, when I got home, when I got to the States, I was like, okay, anxiety for me was the last bit to go because that was something that hypervigilance had kept me aware And I wanted to make sure that I was able to function. And so that anxiety was there again for a reason, but I kept retraining. I kept learning and I kept 
um, up with the tools. And I got to a point then where I was that I woke up one day and it had gone away and I was living life. And so that, I don't know if that was like a specific epiphany of when that happened. It was kind of like I was living life and I was functioning and that was incredible. And then I think a couple months later, I was like, oh my God, I am living life. Like, this is insane. I'm so thankful. And then um, I've got to do something with this, right? I always knew I was going to do something with it, but that's when I was like, 100%, this is something I need to commit time to, to doing. That's when I learned more. Uh, that's when I started kind of non-professionally coaching with people and groups that I had just randomly met throughout my experience. And I always say vital side has always been this entity within itself. And I, I'm just kind of the, <laughs> I'm kind of the facilitator of this work and that's how vital side was created. Um, I will say that after that year, like that, next year, I was, I wanted to challenge my body in every situation. I, you know, went skydiving. I walked across hot coals. I like, I wanted to do all the things to make sure I'm like, can my physical body do it? You know, am I able for it? And again, that's my personality shining through. And when I got that evidence, right, we're always looking for evidence for possibility or evidence that we can evidence that we can't. And I had that evidence. And then I felt satiated. And I was like, okay, this is wonderful. So, you know, personally <laughs> body feels good, feel that strength, feel resilient. Um, and you know, vital side was created as a result of me knowing that this information is so pertinent, having been a medical practitioner and knowing that there is, uh, a bridge that was necessary, that was needed between this concept of neuroplasticity, the brain retraining world, and the medical community. So that was my initial drive to start Vital Side. Was I want to bring this into medical offices so that practitioners know that this is an option for people. And they can do it alongside of something that they're already doing. They can do it alongside of addressing the physical body, you know, and then that can be that perfect combination. So that was really, really important to me. And that was my very first, um, that was, that was my first kind of thought in creating vital side was like, let's bridge that gap. Let's integrate this information that we read about in books and apply it to, um, this healing process. And so vital side was born. Lindsay, let's talk about vital side and when people should be going through this neural retraining. And uh, the first time Matt and I heard about neural retraining was when we interviewed the author of the Parenting with Lyme Bible, Dorothy Leland, who's also the uh, vice president of uh, LymeDisease.org. And what she said was that her daughter didn't get better until she went through neural retraining, that she kept, she, she went through this long and lengthy process, but she still was symptomatic. And then she went through neural retraining and that's when she finally got her life back. Right. So that was the first time it was put on our radar. And, and, and the question that Matt and I have been debating for a long time is, all right, well, when do we do this? 
Do we start the neural retraining immediately as part of a, as part of a sort of an emotional detox? Because Matt and I have been spending a lot of time sort of like coming up with this, this outline of when you would begin to socially detox and emotionally detox and physically detox and environmentally detox. So is this a part of the early element of, of healing where you're, you're using it as part of the preparation element, or is this something you do at the end after, you know, you're, you've gone through all of the treatment the way you did, and you have all the support that your immune system needs to, to kill the microbes. And then ultimately you use this as the final piece to retrain your system so that it's not stuck in the fight or flight mode and no longer symptomatic, despite having all of the um, all of the damage that was being done by your body, all the microbes causing the damage being, uh, being killed? Historically, uh, yeah, that, that latter version is what has been going on. But I think it's because brain retraining, now this is trending. Now people are talking about it. Now practitioners are applying it. And so people are hearing about it more. And I, so I think people in this world, like experts in the brain retraining world, have notoriously used it for people who have tried everything else and okay, now it's time to use brain retraining. That's not what I would recommend. Uh, what's cool, what's kind of interesting, you know, is, is, it, it is it is unique for every person, but I think what you need to kind of figure out is, am I at a place where applying a daily practice, even if it's five, 10 minutes is possible. And that's kind of the question to ask. So a lot of times that is kind of, you know, a couple steps into your healing from Lyme journey. And I say that because throughout my years of practice, what I've understood is there are some people that come to me with this idea, like, I want to use this information, but you know, I can't be on a computer at all, or I am, you know, detoxing from all these different co-infections and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in bed and there's not much I can do. And so it's up to you to discern for yourself. Can I commit five to 10 minutes a day to listening, to just being present with this material? Is that a possibility for me? And so there is an opportunity for something like a passive form of neuroplasticity that can be used. So passive neuroplasticity, meaning you, you aren't necessarily the one that is consciously using your brain to make these changes. And often that consists of neurofeedback, some sort of biofeedback, you know, is that an option first to kind of help you to start to feel a little bit better so you can commit that five to 10 minutes. Active neuroplasticity is what I do and what a lot of other brain retraining programs commit time to. And that is required for you to have attention and then really to integrate it into your life as well. Because without that integration piece, uh, it, it's not going to work, you know? So I think, you know, just from kind of thinking about this myself for many years, this fits into maybe 20 to 30% into your healing journey. 
then this is this an option for you? Because typically maybe by that time, um, the active neuroplasticity piece is a possibility. So one of the reasons I've been so excited to interview you um, is because what we learned from Dorothy Leland, for example, was when her daughter went through the neural retraining program she had gone through, that it was this rigorous program that took her a long time, I think over a year to ultimately succeed. And she said she had to be really uh, Spartan about doing it regularly and aggressively and in this sort of lengthy fashion. And the thought that I had at the time was, well, how would a sick person be able to do that, right? And then we've heard again from other people who have done some of these other other neural retraining programs that you know that you know it, it's just a huge commitment. It, it's just a tremendous commitment, and a lot of people hadn't been able to you know make that commitment either because of the the, the place where they were emotionally or physiologically or or a combination of all the above. And it sounds like you've come up with a more refined program, and that's why we want to and and it's sort of a a, a a program that doesn't require that kind of a lengthy, either on a daily basis or on a lengthy, uh, you know, a time basis to have success with this. So um, talk to us about how you learned from your experience about how a commitment should be made in sort of a bite-sized fashion rather than on this, you know, this much larger um, basis. That was really from personal experience and from that period of non-professional coaching because humans can commit to a bite size thing, right? You think of five minutes, you're like, well, I could do anything for five minutes, right? That's how our brains work. And, and so I see the benefit of a fully intensive, immersive experience, right? It's like going on vacation, you know, uh, Charles Duhigg, uh, you know, uh, author who talks a lot about the power of habit, you know, being on vacation, that is some, that is an optimal time to change habit because everything has changed in your environment, in your routine, the cues are changed up, the reward systems are all changed. So you can easily break a routine habit. And with an immersive experience, what you're doing is you're getting this intense overhaul of, you know, almost this like jolt <laughs> to your body, to your nervous system to shift and to change. And, and there is value to that. And through my experience, what I found is that can lead to rigidity and ultimately this obligatory uh, association to the process of brain retraining. And of course, that leads to, you know, obligatory, okay, this negative association to brain retraining, which you're supposed to be doing this thing that's supposed to make you feel good. And to me, you know, that is a bit of an oxymoron. So thinking about how to structure brain retraining, like I've gone through, you know, different ways to structure it throughout vital side. And so now I'm at this point where I think a lot of people who are attracted to vital side in particular, they're kind of these intuitive brain retrainers and they want to take one thing at a time. I think naturally I have that kind of gentle, soft approach. I'm not going to boot camp you into this brain retraining program. And I think people know that and they appreciate and they're, they're kind of 
you know, driven by that approach of like, okay, if I do one thing a day, if I make this little change and then this little change tomorrow, I'm about consistency and sustainability for the long term. So you create these lasting changes, which is why a lot of things, you know, outside of the brain retraining world, fad diets, these types of things, intense immersive experiences that you commit full throttle to within a week, and then you gain the weight back or whatever, maybe you had good (laughs) experience and then you gain the weight back, right? There's all these things we've done in our lives that are like very immersive and intensive, but they don't create the long-term sustainability and they don't have a plan for you to integrate it into your life. And to me, again, integration is key application to how this applies to my life in a structured way, because that's how humans think without creating that sense of negative rigidity that requires requires me to do it in this way and this way only. So I see the benefit of both. Vital side happens to be this sustainable, consistent approach. Uh, There's still recommendations, like general recommendations that I make. Like I, I tell people, okay, yeah, having that like five to 15 minutes a day, starting somewhere in there and committing time to watching the videos in that way, but doing it every day right? Having that bit of structure to it. And then, you know, tools that you can use in the moment you experience a symptom so that you can start to create brain retraining as a lifestyle rather than a consolidated practice that is meant to fit in this time slot at one period a day. Again, we are retraining our brains all the time. What I'm doing is just teaching some exercises to intentionally retrain your brain so you can connect with optimization of self, feeling joy, feeling safe, feeling good, doing the things you want to again. That is my long-term goal for everybody. So a lot of people, yeah, they resonate with that approach, that daily consistent approach. As much as I would love to continue this conversation, because I really have so many other things that I'd love to talk with you about, this is date night, and I don't want your husband to get upset uh, <laughs> about uh, about us pushing you already 30 minutes past the, the start of date night. So I'm going to ask you a final question. Um, if, God forbid, your husband came walking in the room right after this, um, right after this podcast um, and before date night started... And uh, you saw on him what he saw on you, which was a tick biting him. What would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? So the very first thing that I would do is take a four-sided breath, inhaling for four, holding for four, exhaling for four, and holding for four. And I would instruct him to do the same thing. Okay, so now, okay, our nervous system is in a little bit of a different place. And so I've got all my tools in my closet, I would go and I'd get the tweezers and I'd get as close to the head as possible of the tick without squishing it. And then I would put it in a little glass container, which weirdly enough, I have some of those. And (laughs) I would put it in that container, I would keep it. And then I'd likely recommend that he receive some like homeopathic treatments just for his, you know, prevention to boost his immune system, just to kind of set him up for success 
um, you know, at that time. And then definitely nervous system regulation stuff alongside that. Lindsay Mitchell, the founder of Vital Side, thank you so much for taking time out to share your beautiful story with the community we call Tick Bootcamp. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Lindsay Mitchell. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Lindsay, please visit her on Instagram at myvitalside. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. If you're looking for a specific episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, whether it be a particular topic, a particular person, or a particular location, visit our website at tickbootcamp.com search, and you'll be able to find exactly what you're looking for. Thank you, as always, for listening.